0: Everybody, and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. I am one of your co hosts, Alex Steed. We will be joined by my wonderful co host, Sarah Marshall, momentarily. Today, the episode is about Titanic, James Cameron's 1997 epic love story. You're in for a wonderful time. We are joined today by Madame Clairvoyant, aka Claire Comstock Gay, who's a great friend of the show and who's joining us. In the last show of the year, as she did last year when we talked about Moonstruck. Claire is uh, wonderful, and we're so happy to have her. This movie is very near and dear to Sarah's heart, and it's near to Carolyn Kendrick's heart. Carolyn is our producer and our music director, and, you know, we were watching the movie together, and I was like, I think that you should co-host this episode, not me. So this is actually all you hear from me, although, listen, at the end, I have a little bit of a defense of myself. (laughs) You know, typically Sarah and I will text back and forth about things that come up when we're watching the movies. It's rarely about the movie itself. It's usually about like some theme or something that we find interesting. And Sarah had sent me an article about the bodies and kind of all these ships testimony of seeing bodies in the water immediately after the Titanic went down. So I started looking into it further because I can't believe I never thought about like what happened to the bodies. It's a fascinating ordeal in and of itself. The recovery effort took up to two months. After the ship went down, it's really incredible. And if you're interested in morbidity, it's a fascinating area of study. Anyway, you can read Claire's columns in The Cut. Claire also has a book called Madame Clairvoyance: Guide to the Stars, Astrology, Our Icons, and Ourselves. Carolyn also has an album of songs called The Music of You Are Good, Volume 1. It's songs that have appeared in the series itself. So you can look out for those things by the folks who are in this very episode. A few quick notes before we begin. First, no new episode next week. There will be something in our feed. There will be something that you can listen to. There will be something that will involve us. But it won't be a new episode because uh, we're going to try to take the week off. You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thank you so much to the folks who support us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash good. You get about two bonus conversations a month. There will be one coming out very, very soon. Thank you so much to Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory for supporting us as well. Knack Factory is a commercial and creative video content production company based in Portland, Maine with offices in Nashville, Tennessee, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. As we do every week, we release a playlist of songs inspired by our conversation about the movie and about the movie itself. Uh, You can find that linked in the show notes. This one is super fun. It has contributions by Sarah, Carolyn, and me. So it's an extra long one. There's a lot of great music on it. So check that out. And then finally, we have a growing community on Discord and we love that community so much. I love Discord because it's like a 90s style chat room. (laughs) I find it manageable if you get there and you're like oh there's too many hashtags I understand just give it a minute you'll see how it works it's great there's conversations about the episodes there's conversations about feelings there's conversations about art there's all sorts of things and we welcome all of it and it's a great scene so uh, uh, check out our discord linked in the show notes can you tell us who the woman in the picture is? yes the
1: woman in the picture is me I'm the king of the world! Just
2: give me your hand, I'll pull
1: you back over. No, I mean it. I'll let go. You let go, and I'm, I'm going to have to jump in there after you.
3: I figure life's a gift, and I don't intend on wasting it. You never
1: know what hand you're going to get dealt next, to make each day count. So you want to go to
0: a real party? I can't do this. We're going to have to get a little bit closer, like this.
1: Jack, I want you to draw me like one of your French girls. Wearing only this. Put your hands on me, Jack. Is there anyone there? Yes. What do you see? Iceberg right ahead. Thank you. The water is freezing and there aren't enough boats. Half the people on this ship are going to die.
0: Not the better half. Had a deal. Women enough children. Your money can't save you any more than it can save me. Why'd you do that, huh? You're so
1: stupid, Rose. Why did you do that? Why? You jump high, jump right? Can anyone hear me? Is there anyone alive up there? There's a boat, Jack! Jack! I'll never let go. I promise.
0: Can I take your name, please, love?
1: Dawson. Rose Dawson.
0: We never found
1: anything
3: on Jack. There's no record of him at all.
1: But now you know there was a man named Jack Dawson, and that he saved me in
3: every way that a person can be saved.
2: Hello, Carolyn Kendrick.
3: Hello, Sarah Marshall. Welcome aboard the Titanic. (laughs)
2: We're the luckiest sons of bitches in the world.
3: Oh, gosh. We sure are. And hello, Claire Comstock Gay. Hello.
2: Hello, both of you. Welcome aboard. I want our New Year's tradition to be an episode with Claire, who came and talked with us about Moonstruck last year. And we are talking about Titanic. And you'll note, if you're a savvy viewer, that both of these movies have a love story on a cold, cold night.
4: Yeah, both of these stories are about love breaking your heart. You make the wrong choices, you love the wrong people and die. Yeah, you lose your hand.
2: (laughs) We're talking about Titanic today, and this just feels like a New Year's movie to me in a way that I can't necessarily articulate to the satisfaction of someone who that sounds weird to but like it does that
4: resonate with you guys at all it does it's not something that i've consciously thought before but when you asked me to come on for new year i was like oh yeah of course that makes sense and i think it's partly because it's such a cold movie just physically everyone's cold mm-hmm. all the time i feel cold whenever i watch it a winter movie you're changing your life big things are happening it's the new year
3: mm-hmm I also feel like it's a good New Year's movie in the sense that they are plumbing the depths of history to try to Mm. figure out these old secrets. And I feel like that ends up happening a lot in New Year's where you're like thinking about the past and Mm. how does that apply to the future? And that's a very New Year's resolution thing to do.
2: Totally. Titanic is a giant movie, like giant movies are suited for the holidays when you have the time to watch them, if not the chance to gather together with people.
3: It feels like the kind of movie that could come out on Christmas because it's such a big blockbuster. I'm pretty sure it did come out in
2: December.
4: Yeah, I'm pretty sure that it did. Okay.
2: There you go. And then it was supposed to come out in summer, which is completely wrong. Terrible. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's just not a summer movie. Yeah. I guess to right off the bat, maybe we can all say what our stake in this is. I imagine that we're all like highly invested and... I know that partly because Titanic was re-released in theaters just very briefly in 2017. And one of the places it was re-released, that was closest to where I was living at the time, was Minneapolis. So I was like, hey, Claire, want to go see Titanic in the theater with me? And you were like, yeah. <laughs> there was some kind of schedule confusion somehow. And I showed up like a day earlier than we had planned to go. <gasps> And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go see Titanic by myself because you were busy, and then I'll come back in 24 hours and we'll see Titanic again.
4: (laughs) Sarah, I forgot about that. (laughs) But it was so magical because you just – I didn't even know, I don't think, that it was re-released, and it was so wonderful because I never actually saw it in the theater as a fifth grader when it came out. And so to have, like, the full – theatrical experience was so much right in a wonderful way
2: it is so much and what i remember about it was that the way the sound works in this movie is that you kind of feel like you're on a ship because it like vibrates so much
3: (laughs) it's funny that you saw it twice sarah because i watched it this morning and as soon as it was over I was like, you know what? I would absolutely watch that again immediately right now. Which is an amazing thing about it, generally.
4: Totally, because it's such a grueling experience in a lot of ways. I watched Mm -hmm. it today, right? And when the ship starts to go down and there's an hour and a half left in the movie, that's tough. But you really would watch it right away again. I wanted to watch
2: it again. And maybe that's the central paradox that I am almost most obsessed with about everything about this movie because I saw this in theaters when it came out Mm -hmm. in 1997. I was nine, which is kind of young for this, but that tons of people were that age when they first got into Titanic or younger. And I think I was watching it today thinking like, this movie has so much depth and also it's very obvious about everything in a way that mm-hmm. a child can really easily under like it's a story writ very very large which I think is one of the reasons why some critics highly dislike it and I think is one of the things it has going in its favor and I guess was like immediately totally obsessed with it and I saw it as many times as I could I remember getting The tapes at Costco, like I remember the way the tapes played, I'm sure a ton of people do so that like when I'm watching it now on streaming where it's like all in one piece, when it was on tape, they had to release it on two tapes. And so the first tape ends right after the captain says, I believe you will get your headlines, Mr. Ismay. And then it goes black and I just have to like pause it for a second be like putting in another tape. And yeah, it's a movie that was the number one movie in America for like four months. It dominated and made more money than anyone could ever have possibly imagined. It was this phenomenon where people were going to see it over and over again. And it was famous for having these obsessed repeat viewers and it's also really rough there's a frozen
3: dead baby in this
2: movie
3: claire did you have a similar experience did you watch it on vhs because i i definitely did i was gonna say the same thing that sarah did i i feel like morally obligated to pause when the first tape stops Uh
4: (laughs) but it's funny because the first time i watched it on vhs was at my neighbor's house across the street and they had the like Religious edit clean version. Oh, you know, there was like no, none of the nudity, none of the sexy stuff. That's
3: so funny. I didn't even know that was an option.
4: Titanic Light.
3: (laughs) I
2: remember when it was shown on TV for what I think was the first time. I think they were like Titanic on TV for the first time and discussing it with a girl in my grade whether they would show the naked drawing scene. Mm -hmm. And the girl was like, they might show it. I've seen on TV, they'll show a naked girl and blur out her boobs. They could show it, but they didn't show it. And I just (laughs) felt like that was the dramatic hinge of the whole movie, honestly.
3: I mean, truly. (laughs) Sarah, I have a few questions for you because you wrote an article that I really love about Titanic. And so I would love to hear about that. Yes,
2: I was thinking about this today. I was like, what a thing to have written. I'm really happy with it. I'm really proud of it. And I'm also like, I can't believe and yet I can believe that I found it necessary to essentially like write a really long piece proving that Titanic is good.
3: (laughs) 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 Well, I think that it's necessary because as we proved in our Hook episode last week, like I have no idea what critics think, but I can't imagine people not taking something away from this. But it does kind of feel like people are either into Titanic or they are defensively against Titanic. Maybe not against, but they're like, oh, you know, chick flick, you know, why would you watch that, etc. I was born in 94, so I was a little too young to watch it when it came out obviously but when I was in preschool I did play Titanic a lot with my friends and I would always be Jack which is I don't know but when I was 17 in 2012 I guess it was like the fifth was it the 15 year anniversary of the movie coming out yeah
2: and it was the I think it was for the 100 year anniversary of the titanic sinking.
3: Right, 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 right. Yes, yes, that makes sense. I went and saw it in theaters in San Francisco with a friend of mine who I was in preschool with, who we both loved Titanic and we both would play Titanic together and I was just absolutely sobbing the entire time. I actually had to like leave the theater because I was so upset, like in a, in a good way. Mm-hmm. I was just so affected by the movie and she was confused by why I was so upset, which I think is interesting because even though she was like a pro-Titanic person, she couldn't really Mm. understand why I was so affected. So I do think that there are people who are affected by this movie and there are people who aren't. So, Sarah, why do you think that is? Mm. I mean, I'm more confused about why it is that there are people who aren't
2: just objectively like this movie is James Cameron at the height of his powers, like he's really figured out how to make movies at this point. He's made the Terminator. He's made Terminator 2, Judgment Day. He's made the Abyss, which he was able to do kind of like more and more gigantic visions and to make money for people by doing them. So it was at the point where he was able to do something giant. And I I don't understand how people can withstand what this movie is putting out there because I still think of it as two tapes because I feel like that is how the story is kind of split because like right in the middle the iceberg appears, just like how right in the middle of the mummy, (laughs) the mummy appears. Yep. (laughs) And until this point we've been having, you know, this beautiful love story, which I can see some viewers not being on board for like that's their problem. (laughs) (laughs) This really powerful, historic, like very sincere rom-com set in 1912. I always feel kind of startled when they like cut away from Jack and Rose kissing or they like have basically the the ship get CGI decrepit mm-hmm. as they're having this moment. And you're like, oh shit, that's right. This is this fucker's gonna sink. Right. And so the moment when it pivots and becomes a disaster movie, it kind of becomes like a different kind of movie. You kind of get two movies for the price of one at the very least. And f- from that point, it's like as relentless as anything that people who want Oscar bait type stuff could possibly want. It's funny to me that people can remain untouched by this because I feel like if the love story doesn't get you then surely the disaster story should, right? Yeah,
3: you would think so. I mean, what are you made of? Ice? Are you an iceberg? Are you an
2: iceberg? <laughs> Do you feel guilty? Right. And then I can I can see people being like kind of bothered by the very giantness and relentlessness of this movie or by the fact that like it'll work on you whether you want it to or not, but Claire, what do you think? Have you ever had a conflicted period about loving Titanic? Because I know I did. I feel like that's a developmental phase practically.
4: I mean, I feel like my conflicted period was when it came out and I was a contrarian fifth grader who was like, love movies, not for me. Right. You know, as a girl who witnesses love stories that like diminish women's lives, right? I think that's a common message or a common story that. Girls get. And so I was very like, oh no, ew, <laughs> no. Hmm. But then once I actually watched it, you know, a few years later, and it was like, oh no, it's good actually. Right. And I think that's part of it where it very much is two movies and people forget when they're not watching it about the disaster movie, which is strange because it's so much like it's called Titanic, right? It's called Titanic, <laughs> <laughs> right. The press <laughs> narrative is so much like, oh, Leo Mania, oh, girls, oh, the love story, oh, Celine Dion, mm-hmm. that you can practically forget <laughs> that it's this like horrifying, brutal disaster movie, and that's ultimately what it is.
3: Mm-hmm. This is kind of like a classic Romeo and Juliet setup, so I think if mm. you really discard the last half of the movie, and if you discard Kate Winslet's or Rose's perspective, then you might think, like, right, this is just any other typical romantic story and therefore there isn't any other message other than that but that's not really true like her character like ends up growing a lot mm-hmm. especially we learn after the disaster that she gets to do all of these really incredible things I could see how if you were if you like hadn't watched the movie or if you were just thinking about it in terms of like the regular narratives that most movies followed at this point how you would Mm-hmm. miss that or just just not think about that too much
4: i also think like as a child for me i was not equipped to even process the like magnitude of just the tragedy and i don't know if that's a kid thing or if that was just to me as a kid thing i feel like every time i watch it i start weeping earlier and earlier in the movie right like each few mm-hmm. years of yeah. life experience i have i start just sobbing and as a kid it was like oh yeah that's sad But just having lived in the world longer, it's like, oh, my God, how do we live with this?
2: This time I started crying when Rose jumped off the lifeboat, which feels pretty late.
3: I consistently cry at that part when he says, oh, you're so stupid, Rose, that I have never not cried at that. Uh Oh, my God.
2: Welcome to You Are Good, a podcast where three people cry all together sometimes. Yeah. I've also used to do like Twitter scene breakdown analysis proving here's why the scene in Titanic is good. And something I really love that that scene does that I didn't pick up on until pretty recently is that they have Rose be put on the boat at the same time that the little girls are being put on the boat by oh. the dad who's like, it's only goodbye for a little while, which is like already incredibly heart rending. And then when we have Rose looking up at jack as she's being lowered and like i assume putting together what's happening because he's looking incredibly sad while looking at her he's right next to the dad who's also crying yeah and it's like james cameron master storyteller signifying that she's like being put in a child's role and she's gonna leap out of that boat and into adulthood
3: yeah wow yeah there's a lot of like little emotional things that it, it takes a few viewings to really metabolize because there is so much happening in this movie. It's, it's an amazing amount of stuff to actually just process within these three hours and 14 minutes.
2: Yeah, especially when you're not a little kid. I think
3: that's that's something
2: that I find really impressive about it is that like so many people fell in love with this movie just like as children because it's a story that like, a child can understand. It's a very basic dynamic falling in love, ship sinking, we're all gonna die. And I just think that I'm gonna keep (laughs) seeing things in it and loving it for my entire life. Because like, to me, now there's something and I haven't really watched it since we've been having a pandemic. So coming back to it now, it has more Mm -hmm. layers of meaning, (laughs) obviously, about how like the larger the system, the harder it is to steer, the wronger the decision might be because you think it's a good idea to steer away from the iceberg, but actually you're just going to be like softly scraping little holes into each and every compartment that you even have. Great job. Mm-hmm.
3: In the context of disasters, which we are obviously living through one right now,
4: mm-hmm.
3: how do all of the little human errors of this story affect you this time? And what does the disaster part of this story mean to you
4: mm.
3: now during pandemic? I mean, there's
4: a bunch of different things, right? I feel like I've always loved Victor Garber so much. And the like tragedy of the Victor Garber character really got to me this time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Being the only one, I think, to really grapple in that moment with like what he <laughs> has done. I guess the captain also is a very tragic figure. But kind of on the flip side of him are all these kind of low-ranking guys who are using their last minutes alive on Earth to like harass the lower-class passengers, right? feels Mm -hmm. very real and very present in our lives all over the world right now and just really got me.
2: I'm not positive because I haven't read it in a few years, but I did read the script to Titanic Mm. a while ago. And one of the things I think was originally in there that didn't end up getting filmed or if it was filmed they didn't keep it in was showing us how Cora died. Oh, Cora Jack's best girl which I think was behind one of those locked gates and steering oh. and I think that they decided maybe the reason that got cut was that that was like too dark even for this movie. Whenever anyone's dismissive of this movie, I'm just like, how many movies are there that are like this unrelentingly realistic about how horrible it is when there's a shipwreck and lots of families on the ship and then there's a class system?
3: Mm-hmm. Right. I can't imagine people not getting something out of this movie today, seeing as we are currently navigating our way through the classist. System with healthcare and with who survives in this country right now. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine not getting something out of this movie within that lens and not taking to heart the fact that this system is set up so that the rich survive at the expense of others. Mm-hmm. James Cameron obviously is incredibly wealthy mm-hmm. and has made just shit tons of money from all of these different ventures. Do you think that what the movie is saying about class and class consciousness is different than what James Cameron's view of class is? I think inevitably,
2: and I feel like art is maybe how you get to express the best ideas that you kind of have in your head, but aren't living by necessarily. Mm -hmm. Because like one of the things I always think about with this movie since learning it is that they filmed it in Mexico partly so they could avoid unions. Oh, Um, really? Wow.
4: (laughs) Which is like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Wow. Right. I think partly James Cameron's like totally unrelated to any ideas or like philosophies he has, but just by being so committed to like the factual truth, Mm -hmm. that is kind of what reveals the like horrible, inequities and the horrible just Mm -hmm. everything about this system you know it's not like an anti-capitalist movie Mm. but it's a movie about capitalism and that is committed to telling the truth about it which ends up i think necessarily being anti-capitalist if you're gonna try to tell the truth about it
2: Right. It's not told necessarily with a viewpoint. It's just like, this is what literally <laughs> happened. And <laughs> right. you're like, oh, wow, that's what literally happened.
3: Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's so interesting that it's like, it's not that James Cameron necessarily is committed to exposing injustice. It's just that he is telling the truth and that the truth is that we, as humans, are incredibly unjust and cruel often.
2: Yeah. That worked out. Yeah. <laughs> Can we tell the story of Titanic? I don't know. I think that would be fun.
3: Yeah, I think so, too.
2: Okay. Speaking of the like factual obsession, I believe James Cameron was inspired to make Titanic because he watched a TV special. I don't think it was Nova, but I always imagine it being Nova because that's what I grew up watching about Robert Ballard finding the remains of the Titanic. Mm. and And I think he already really liked diving. He's you know, I think a technologically fascinated kind of guy. And for whatever reason, he was like, I want to go down to Titanic in a submersible and poke around and get video of it. And I'm going to pitch this movie to the network or the studio or whatever it is I work for, and they will give me some money to go on a Russian submersible trip. (laughs) And they did. (laughs) And I like to think that the genesis of Titanic is that James Cameron was like, I want to go down to the bottom of the ocean. I will tell them I'm making a movie about it and then they will pay me to do it. (laughs) And that apparently was like really, really moved by the experience, which I can only imagine you would have to be because I've seen little Titanic artifacts in different museums. And it's intense because it's like all of these things on this doomed piece of human civilization that sank to the bottom of the ocean are just kind of still around and i think there's an egg i think in one of the museums i saw just an egg Hmm. that survived the ocean floor because that's how structurally perfect eggs are so they were like here's an egg wow from the
3: titanic like a chicken egg yes
2: Not like a marble egg or like a decorative egg. It was just like an egg that was going to be in somebody's omelet. Wow. (laughs) And so James Cameron was like, "Okay, I'm going to do a Titanic movie and it's going to be a love story. But like the point of the love story is that by caring about these main characters, you care about everybody on the Titanic. And I have to say, I really think this movie achieved its goal. And there was also the issue this was like a major issue for little girls in the 90s. It's kind of like I was into My Little Pony before bronies appeared thing. Uh. <laughs> it was, if you were a little girl who cared about Titanic history before the movie Titanic, like that was a major distinction that you had to impress upon people.
3: And were you one of those girls?
2: I think I thought I was, but I was only like vaguely interested and I was just like interested in everything spooky that had happened in history. Mm-hmm. So like it got caught up in that, but I was probably more interested in mummies. <laughs> okay. So the story of Titanic, we open with a submersible. The submersible is going into the wreckage of the Titanic because Rock Lovett An adventure guy played by Bill Paxton is looking for the heart of the ocean, a giant diamond that he believes went down with the Titanic. And he's a treasure hunter. He has quotes like, cracker open.
3: (laughs) (laughs) He's also incredibly hot because of his earring, I will say. His
2: earring. It's true. (laughs) I think he has a real pirate vibe. And I also love that he's wearing a cable-knit sweater, and he doesn't roll his sleeves up even one bit before, like, poking around in this safe he's just pulled up from the bottom of the ocean. (laughs) So there's no diamond in the safe that he recovers, but there is a portrait of a hot, naked lady wearing the diamond, which he puts on TV because he's on the news for some reason. Nothing happened that day. And who should see it but 100-year-old rose who's the lady in the picture who sees it from her extremely cool house in southern california where she's doing pottery and i have a theory about this because she's working with a very reddish clay and the kind of like gunk that was inside the safe that brock lovett opened was also kind of reddish and clayey and it like got his hands dirty when he was feeling disappointed and now and next we see her like Shaping the red clay. So I feel like that's expressing that she's powerful uh, around the sort of like the substance of history, which she is only like ever bested by. Oh, wow. I've watched this movie a lot of times. (laughs) (laughs) And so she calls in, she gets a direct line to him really fast, and she says, The woman in the picture is me. And then we cut to a helicopter because she's being flown in to the research vessel. And then She sits down with everybody. She's just like a very powerful old lady. She just like radiates power. And she's like, it's been 84 years. And Brock Lovett is like, just tell us anything you can remember. And she's just like do you want to hear my story or not, Mr. Lovett? Yeah. And then she just like launches right into it. Like, i how long do you think they were sitting there? As she tells the story.
3: Could have been 20 minutes, could have been 20 hours. I honestly don't know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I assume they like took breaks occasionally. They're like, does anyone want some chili? Let's all have some chili. And then well, that's like where the tape ends is where they yeah. all had chili. <laughs> but yeah, she sits everybody down and she's like, if you want the diamond, you're going to listen to my story. By the way, it's so funny to me that she says at the end that she's never told anyone this story or about Jack or anything ever. And in this group of people she's telling, like, there's like 18 people there, mm-hmm. including like these random Russian submersible techs who are just like, they might not even speak English, really.
3: <laughs> you don't need to speak English to
2: know the story of love. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Well, I want to like toss this to somebody and maybe we can go in, in a round fashion. Anyone want to pick this up?
4: Sure. So yeah, so we cut back to her young woman boarding the Titanic with her horrible fiancé, Billy Zane. The <laughs> what? What's his industry? Pittsburgh Steel Tycoon. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, have you ever seen... A man's face that so loudly screams tycoon.
2: Only the Mr. Monopoly.
4: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So they're about to get on the Titanic. She's miserable. You can see she hates this tycoon. She hates her life. Meanwhile, (laughs) vibrant young Leonardo DiCaprio is playing poker with his sweet friend Fabrizio trying to win tickets on the Titanic. Which, can I say also, Fabrizio, this round really got me like this poor nice boy is going on the titanic (laughs) it shouldn't happen to him he's just a sweetie
2: we had a nice romance with that norwegian girl
3: (laughs) (laughs) wait was the norwegian girl was she that's not the same girl that falls off i think it was at the very end
2: was it okay but i have only begun to think this fairly recently but yeah i'm pretty sure it was okay well that's sad which is rough. Yeah, that's really rough. Because she was making full eye contact with Rose at the time.
3: Yeah, I was like, I feel like this is somebody from the front half of the movie, but I was so worried about other things that I didn't think about it.
4: <laughs> yeah, I feel like James Cameron's way too into echoes and parallels and resonances for that not to be her
3: Yeah, it is truly remarkable how much she hates Billy Zane and how justified that is, because he really is the worst. I think (laughs) Billy Zane's character
2: in this needs like
3: an older bossy
2: lady to sort him out. Like this is Mm -hmm. a kind of like Age of Innocence type thing. He needs like someone who would be played by Annette (laughs) Benning.
3: I was going to say maybe he needs the unsinkable Molly Brown. Straighten him up a little bit.
2: Yes. Oh, my God. And then she needs to, like, put on her misery hat and, like, tie him up and, you know, not cut his foot (laughs) off or anything, but just, like, be a little dominant until he, like, works through some of his his daddy issues.
3: Yeah, he's just a little
2: brat. See,
4: I feel like what he needed most was to lose all of his money, and then he did and couldn't Mm. survive that.
2: He's such a cartoon character of an evil millionaire. I just love it. Like, I love the part where he has gotten onto a lifeboat by fraudulent means after running after people and shooting at them on a sinking ship and then he's like gotten an oar for himself and someone's trying to climb onto the lifeboat and he's like no you'll swamp
3: us oh my gosh yeah
4: (laughs) he's just like so cartoonishly evil it's amazing there is something really satisfying about how, you know, he doesn't even get one moment of one single redeeming quality. He gets nothing. He's just no. awful, like top to bottom, front to back. He's the worst guy ever.
2: They don't have an origin story for how he got to be this way. It's just like, yeah, some people are just jerks. He's like he's the Paul Riser of this movie.
4: Mm-hmm. But yeah, Rose is like so depressed by this thought of her future. She sees her future stretching out with her horrible fiance and her mostly horrible mother. And she goes to kill herself by jumping off the back of the boat. And then Jack Dawson comes to find her and says, don't do it.
3: Or specifically, he's like, you won't. You won't.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He's amazing. This is the part where we learn that this character is from Wisconsin, which I think (laughs) makes total sense because he says And I quote, which is why I'm not looking forward to jumping in there after you. (laughs) Oh, my gosh.
3: Yeah. I would say probably not a great suicide aversion technique. However, it really works. (laughs) It really works this time. The
2: fact that he immediately starts unlacing his boots is probably kind of distracting Mm -hmm. and disarming. Yeah. She's like, "Okay, I'm coming back over. And then she slips and falls for real. And he has to haul her back over. And then the White Star Line people think that he's assaulting her because they're like, he took his boots off. So Cal comes and they explain what happened, and he gives him $20 for saving his fiance from falling to her death. And then when Rose says that's not enough, he invites Jack to dinner.
3: Which also, <laughs> they don't actually give him $20. Like, they're just like, hey, do you want to come to dinner? Oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck, dude? Like, all right. Maybe also give him the twenty dollars
2: because then later he could tell Rose he had30 dollars in his pocket.
3: Oh mm-hmm. <laughs> Carolyn, what happens next? So essentially we're kind of getting the tale of two cities where Rose is living this very upper upper class life. She's feeling very stifled. Her mom reveals that they have lost all their money. And that's why she is engaged to Billy Zang because they're like trying to achieve their status still. Jack comes to dinner the next evening. But before that happens, they have this real bonding moment on the deck where he reveals that he is an artiste and he has been to Paris and he draws all these French ladies. And she looks at his art and she really likes it. And that disarms her, even though they get into kind of a fight. They are starting to fall for each other. She realizes there's a little bit more to him than meets the eye. Then they go to dinner and he gets all spiffed up because the unsinkable Molly Brown played by the wonderful Kathy Bates, who it was like, quote unquote, new money. So she sees the humanity in him as she sees the humanity in other people we learn later and so she loans Jack some new clothes and they go to dinner we learn that everybody in these this upper class life is living incredibly narrowly and they all have money but they all have secrets too and then what's next
2: and then <laughs> Jack hands Rose a piece of paper that says make it count meet me at the clock And then she meets him at the clock and he says, so you want to go to a real party? And then they go to a party in steerage where there's Irish music and they dance and they drink beers and there's a Swedish guy arm wrestling, an Irish guy. Mm -hmm. It's great. And they just have an amazing sweaty time in steerage. And she says... What? You think a first class
3: girl can't drink? And it's just the
2: best. It's just the best, you guys.
3: <laughs> and she goes on point and shows everybody that she is tough too cuz she can stand on her toes. Which has to be painful. Yeah, truly.
2: And also we learn that James Cameron understands the nature of feminine power in a patriarchal society and how it's all about withstanding pain. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> And so she and Jack really bond and then the next morning Cal acts really scary and overturns a table because she says, I'm not a foreman in one of your mills that you can command. I'm your fiance. And he's like, yes, you are my wife in practice, if not by law. And you're like, oh, man, the patriarchy is so scary. Mm -hmm. And like one of the things I love most about Jack is that, like from the beginning, he's very much. He's very adamant and articulate about being like, Rose, like you have real problems. You were driven to a suicide attempt because you feel trapped because you are trapped. And like you need to make a big move and get out of this horrible situation. Like this is going to kill you.
3: One of the reasons that this character is maybe eternally hot is that he actually like sees her for what is going on. Mm -hmm. He actually validates those problems, even though it could be very easy for him to be like, Oh, you're just a rich girl. Like you have it all, like all of these things. Maybe that's why Leo mania really took off.
2: Yeah. I think if you combine the perfect face of a perfect angel with like a character who has emotional intelligence to spare and wants you to be like your biggest, bravest self, I think that's very special and rare in America. Yeah. And then <laughs> Cal freaks out Rose. Then she gets her corset laced by her scary mom, Frances Fisher, who was in an amazing episode of Law and Order, by the way, uh, <laughs> <laughs> who's like, you have to marry this shithead or we're going to lose
4: all our money. You don't want me to be a seamstress, do you? Oh boy. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: Maybe I do, bitch. <laughs> that was actually one of the more triggering things for me. This watch because. Seeing a mom being that manipulative is really intense. Mm -hmm. The mom and Cal seem to
2: be getting along fine this entire movie. And it's like, why don't you marry the guy then? (laughs) They could be fucking like I could write some fan fiction about that. Maybe I should. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Do it. (laughs) And so after that, she's on a lovely tour of the ship with Mr. Andrews, where she finds out that there's only half the necessary number of lifeboats When Jack intercepts her and is like, Rose, I know how the world works. I know I only have 10 bucks, but like you got to get out of this situation or that fire that I love about you is going to go out. And she's like, I'm fine. I love Cal and goes off to her horrible life. And then later that day realizes that, no, she must break free and be with Jack. And so she goes and finds him at the front of the ship. And we have... The I wonder if this was part of playing Titanic, Carolyn. the I'm flying moment. <laughs>
3: Boy was it? Yeah, I think that this was really the only part of playing Titanic. I will say.
2: Yeah. And I think I probably then, based on that, played some Titanic as well, because you just you stand at the front of anything and do it.
4: At my elementary school, there were two elements to playing Titanic. And one was you're on the slide and one person's on the top holding on to someone's hands and the other person's at the bottom and then at the top says, I'll never <laughs> let go, Jack. But then
3: you let him go. <laughs> yeah, that's what I did, too. <laughs>
2: I wonder if there's a sociology paper out there somewhere about playing Titanic and like how many places it shows up in geographically and what the elements
3: are. (laughs) If there isn't one yet, if you're listening, go go write that paper. Yeah. This
2: moment was so parodied and so quoted that it just kind of became, I think, radioactive for a few years because of being like too big. Because in the 90s, children, we only had like 20 memes a year. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so we got really, really tired of them, and then we didn't want to talk about them for a long time. But I love this moment, and I love how the first time Jack is at the front of the ship after he and Fabrizio first board, there's what I can only describe as a truly erotic scene where like he's at the front of the ship, he's having the time of his life. The captain is, like, full speed ahead. And then we, like, go down and watch dozens of sweaty guys shoveling coal into Mm -hmm. all these ovens. And then, like, these giant oiled pistons start turning and moving. And then it's like the ship is moving with full power and the captain's drinking a cup of tea, you know, watching his giant dick slice through the ocean. And it's like (laughs) the captain has the dick, but Jack is the dick. (laughs) Yeah. I interpret this in my like film theory brain as him bringing Rose to his place of power and being like, here you go, Rose. Now you be the dick. We can both be the dick in this relationship.
3: Yeah, it is a very empowering (laughs) moment. I wonder if that's like the first moment, maybe other than the dance scene where she's dancing with down below. I wonder if that's really the first moment that she feels free.
2: And she's like also made that choice to go to him. Mm-hmm. And she'll decide a little bit later that she's getting off the ship with him. But this is also kind of what makes me a fan of the James Cameron Irv that I think there's this consistent theme of like love will set us free. Love will enable us to be braver than anything else. And I think that's true. And also when they, when they were filming this where they're at the front of the ship and and they start to kiss after he helps her to fly. Apparently, when they were shooting it, like, every time the light was good, they would have to, like, run up and, like, start kissing so they can get, like, (laughs) I guess as many options as they could get. And after a while, she was just like, ugh, no more kissing.
4: Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Must
2: be nice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) After that, she and Jack go back to her stateroom where he draws her, like, one of his French girls with the heart of the ocean on. And it's a really sweet scene. Like I know that this Mm -hmm. is an iconic scene, but again, in the breakdown, it's like the moment when she takes off his robe and like the way that he reacts is just so very special. Mm -hmm. I think.
3: It's very erotic and it's very sweet. And I think the sweetness is what makes it erotic. And also he is so obviously nervous And, like, kind of flustered. Yeah. That's also really nice to see his guard be broken down a little bit. Yeah, I love that. And I feel like
2: I have not seen that in a lot of movies. That feels strange in a wonderful way. Yeah, I agree. And then, so they do the drawing. She puts the drawing in the safe to taunt Cal. (laughs) She and Jack get chased by the valet, David Warner, in his greatest role, and then find the car where they have sex, where we know Rose has an orgasm because of the hand thing. That's what I think that is.
3: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That's obviously very clear. And I really like that James Cameron, who kind of famously, from what I understand, is like not necessarily lucky in love and maybe has had some (laughs) hardships in that regard. I like that in this film, he really emphasizes that she is obviously having a good time i love that claire did this scene make
2: an impression on you at an at an impressionable age
3: it
4: did in spite of my initial viewings you know slicing out so much of the wonderful like actually sexy stuff in it but i do think something that's wonderful about kind of this little mini arc that a lot of later movies right that try to kind of you know, like empower a female character, but don't take that actual desire or like eroticism or like sexiness into account. Right. And so someone is empowered or they're free, but there's no, you don't get a sense that they're experiencing real desire. (laughs) And that seems like, you know, here, that's such a part of it.
3: Yeah. And I think also what you were saying, Sarah, the fact that she has chosen this, like she is finally in charge of her destiny. And she seems really powerful in that moment. Like they've been being chased and they've been, and also we have the moment where in present day, as she's telling the story, She's like, do you mean, did we do it? <laughs> and then she gets to subvert their expectations by thinking that they're going to do it on the couch. And then she actually gets to, you know, do it in the car. Or when, she, when he's trembling and she's like, oh, you're trembling. It's, it's just the whole thing. Oh, it's so great. Also, like, Leo has su- such, like, great soft butch vibes in that moment. Whole thing, yes. so good. <laughs> yeah, and I found that the whole concept of
2: sex as a trembly thing, like, very exciting as a nine or ten year old Uh because I was like oh I've never heard of of this kind before (laughs) usually it's just something that happens in sitcoms and people wear clothes that imply sex or don't but this was definitely the sexiest movie I had ever seen at that time in my life which is I would hope so I guess because I was nine (laughs) and what it suggested sex did to men was wonderful to me where it's it it feels like you know what it feels like is it feels like this moment of like mutual birth I it must be hot in that hole down there because like they're so sweaty Mm -hmm. it's so steamy and he's like lying on her chest like he's a newborn baby honestly (laughs) yeah this idea of like sex as something that's like very that can be vulnerable for men I think I found really exciting about it and continue to think like goddamn Titanic like this is just the sex scene is doing some stuff that I have not seen anywhere else even Mm -hmm. still
3: yeah so often sex is portrayed as something that happens to women right and she is obviously an active participant and she yeah again has just so much power over him in the sense that they're sharing in this in this beautiful moment and they're giving each other joy and they're giving each other pleasure, they crumble in a good way in the face of the ecstasy that they're experiencing. And I think that's really important for everybody to see because, yeah, sex is not something that just happens to you. Sexist in practice should be something that like buckles your knees and like shakes the entire universe and transcends not only this plane, but the next and heaven and earth. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> message for tweens. Yes, it yeah. Just is. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah,
4: totally. And for tweens to get the message that like you can want to have sex, right? <laughs> like, what a thing. Yeah,
2: this was, I think, one of the pieces of culture that I feel really happy I was exposed to in that way specifically along with everything else and I love also that like her life with Cal is just him constantly trying to have sex with her, it seems like. And her, you know, being like near the end of her ability to not have sex with him and clearly not, mm-hmm. I think, feeling some amount of dread about that, maybe a lot. The morning after the steerage party, when he's like, I had hoped you would come to me last night. Well, it's like,
3: why would you think that that would happen? <laughs> like, You just hang out and drink brandy with your bros.
2: Like, right. Does she really want to come Lose her virginity to someone who's, like, just been talking about antitrust laws for four (laughs) hours. So the fact that when we get to the sex scene with Jack, it's, like, so based on her desire. And we know this because she, like, drags him from the front seat into Mm -hmm. the back seat. It's amazing. Cal comes back and finds out that the diamond is gone, and so is the girl. And there's a taunting drawing, and the street rat has seen his fiance naked. It's too much to bear. And so <laughs> he sends some white star cronies after them. Jack and Rose escape, and they run through the engine room, of course. Mm-hmm to irish music which conveys freedom and then when they're on deck this is kind of the thing in this movie that i feel weirdest about rose is like when the boat docks in new york i'm coming with you and they're having this big romantic moment and they kiss and then the guys who are watching for the iceberg are distracted and watch them kiss which kind of implies that it's a little bit their fault Mm -hmm. Which is just weird. I don't know. It's like it's a very daring insertion of your own characters into history, James Cameron. I'll put it that way. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. (laughs) But they see the iceberg. And at this point, really, I think the second movie begins because now the iceberg is in charge. And so we see the process that they have to go through to steer the boat, which is like many steps communicating with guys on different layers of the ship through like 1912 mechanics and then very gradually starting to turn with the tiny little rudder and making it so that they don't collide with the iceberg head on, which people know now would actually have been a much better outcome because they would have flooded the first compartment and then just like gone to New York that way with just like a fucked up Hmm. front. But they wouldn't have sunk entirely. Wow. Which is like so infuriating to know. It's just like, oh, man. Yeah. Could they have known that could they have figured that out is that like does that have to be an armchair historian thing because they weren't even thinking about sinking enough to have been like you know we should really tell (laughs) whoever's in charge of this to like just bonk it head on if it comes to that because i think they're just like no chance of icebergs it'll be fine but they managed to scrape the side of the ship and rupture five compartments which mr andrews informs us is too many Right before the end of tape one. And so at this point, you have to go rewind the first tape, obviously, and then put it back in the case (laughs) and get the second tape. Also, Jack and Rose come back to see Mother and Cal to tell them about the big iceberg because Rose is just like too good for her own well-being. And so they accuse Jack of stealing the heart of the ocean and handcuff him in the brig, I guess. And so Rose first goes up with her family and kind of realizes she talks to Mr. Andrews and figures out that the ship is going to sink. And then she has to become Action Rose in order to find Jack and then go through the rapidly flooding ship and get an ax in order to cut through the handcuffs and save him. And then this is the part at which my recap is going to be less Detailed because I could put it together, but it's basically like this you kind of have to experience. Yeah. But it's essentially the story finding excuses to keep sending Jack and Rose into the ship several times and then figuring out how to keep them on the ship and alive for as long as possible. And then having them trying to survive being in the water, having not gotten on a lifeboat. Through all this, you're watching them interact with. 30 to 40 side characters who you've been, who've been established in the first half of this movie. It's like, and how is this person going to yeah. die? And how is this person going to die? And how is this person going to die? Cause they're all going to die.
4: But I think importantly, but how is this person going to behave themselves? Right? Like right, who's right. going to surprise us with their dignity? Who's going to be, you know, like a total ghoul about this. Who's going to be heroic. Who's going to be awful. And that part I think is a really important part of the second half of the movie Kind of, I think in many disaster movies or horror movies, ask you to put yourself like, oh no, am I the one with integrity or am I the Mm -hmm. ghoul here? No movie I've ever experienced personally does that more than Titanic and makes you sit with yourself also reflected through all these different characters.
3: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Pretty universally, with a couple exceptions, all of the rich first class. People act pretty ghoulishly and (laughs) all of them essentially are completely fine with saving themselves and sacrificing all of these poor people who are in steerage and truly without blinking an eye. And we really get to see a lot of class solidarity, not necessarily consciously, but out of survival that all of these people who are quite literally locked down being doomed to their deaths. And so one of the most empowering parts and also one of the saddest is when, you know, they finally get through the gates and you know that not everybody is going to make it. I think this movie is important in the sense, especially now, since we are going through a pandemic and we will continue to go through many disasters throughout our lives yeah, like you were saying, Claire, like how do we conduct ourselves and how do we conduct ourselves with integrity and how do we help others when we are in moments of despair? And yeah, this is like a very cautionary tale in that regard. Mm. You know, among the people locked down below,
4: there's the solidarity and among the upper class people, they have solidarity because they want to get off. Yeah. And what really, like I was saying before, just got me so much this time was all these like servants essentially keeping the other people locked down below where it's like oh yeah. no. like that's the worst right yeah that's the worst you're not going to make it off either like why are you doing this right
2: and a moment that like conveys this really well to a nine-year-old is that's white star line property you'll have to pay for that you know oh my gosh yeah
3: yeah <laughs> i think it's a good lesson to learn early on in life that like it doesn't pay to be a bootlicker uh-huh.
2: <laughs> I don't know. Every time I watch this movie, it gets me the part where they're looking at the plans and talking about how long until the ship is completely underwater and Mr. Andrews goes an hour, two at most. And you see the captain reacting, you know, struggling to metabolize that fact, which is just like impossible to believe. I feel like where you are looking at the ship where you're like, no, it has tennis courts. It has chandeliers and, and and china and eggs i mean no it that can't happen it's like feels like the size of a small country or at least a town and so the the way that like humans can game ourselves into being like this is unsinkable if it can't sink because of engineering then it can't sink because it just can. we can't we can with how no And then it does
3: anyway. And like every time I watch it, I'm still like, no, this ship can't sink. Oh, yeah, there it goes. (laughs) Not to get too dark, but that's a lot of the way I feel about our current country right now, where just because it hasn't failed yet doesn't mean that we're not in the process of it happening. And Mm. that means that we really all have to be very conscientious of who we're helping and how we're helping people right now.
2: Right. Are you going to trick yourself into living the last moments of your life in a harmful or a meaningless way because you need to keep believing that the hierarchy you've always known is going to continue through mm-hmm. actual apocalypse.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So that's the story of Titanic for the most part. Then we should go over just the very ending probably.
2: Yeah. There's a lot of controversy about this ending. I remember my friend's older sister telling me, her take on this again in 1997. So I know this has been a debate since day one. But basically, the ship sinks. Jack and Rose manage to find a big piece of wreckage for Rose to climb onto, which is based on a real piece of wreckage, which is at the Halifax Maritime Museum. You should go see it. Mm. So Rose gets on it. And then Jack tries to get on it for a second. And then it seems like it's not going to work for whatever reason, like they're too heavy. So he's like, never mind. August. like stay fully immersed <laughs> in this freezing cold water. That's what we'll do. So the debate has raged on ever since this movie came out, which is why couldn't Jack get on the board? Surely there was room for him. It's a big fucking piece of wood. And my suspicion has always been that Jack, well, two things. Jack is being a hero, and he doesn't want to have him and Rose, by being on it together, maybe making it so that neither of them survived, because they'll be getting lapped by more cold water at the time, or just because it won't work. And B, it's a screenwriting thing, because James Cameron always has his male romantic leads die, because Mm. that's kind of all he had figured out by
3: Titanic, because he'd been divorced four times. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I watched this this morning, and my brother, who is 16 years old and who has also never seen the movie, we were taking a walk afterwards. And I was like, oh, I just had this really emotional experience watching Titanic. And his first thing that he said was, well, I really think that Jack probably could have fit on the board. (laughs) And I was like, why don't you watch the movie with me tonight, and then we'll talk about it then. Because it does seem when he tries to get on it, that it is going to sink. I trust him to know, I guess I believe him. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Well, yeah. And I feel like by this point they've both done so many like foolishly heroic things for one another. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? That I kind of trust like, okay, if it's, if it was going to work, you guys would have done it. That's very true. But it makes sense to me. as
2: just like something that would be physically true. Because it's not the size of the piece of wood. It's the amount of human being it can hold. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is James Cameron's man as Christ romantic metaphor. And we've seen it before with is his name, Kyle Reese and the Terminator. Mm. But basically the love interest who like changes your life, shows you what you're capable of and then conveniently dies (laughs) because blame the culture, I think, because it's just we have this idea that the most the height of romance is to not have to actually share a long-term relationship with each other because in America, I think we don't trust people to ruin everything that way. And I think that's very pessimistic. I think that like in this apocalypse, like where only love can save us, we have to mutual survival as much as possible.
4: Yeah.
3: As much as I would love for Jack Dawson to survive, and as much as I would love for him to be in that picture with Rose on the Santa Monica Pier, I, I do think that the story is maybe a little bit more impactful because he he dies. Yeah. Kind of going back to the classic Romeo and Juliet plot, this is kind of, I mean, this is just something that we've had in stories for our whole lives, and so many people die on this ship and so many people die in the water and that is all incredibly terrible but Jack's death is really what makes us feel the actual trauma of this of this historical event
1: mm. not
3: that the other characters don't but his death is really i think what solidifies this movie and this story as one of those tragedies that we will think about for a very long time
1: There's no stronger wind than the one that blows down a lonesome white starlight No prettier sight than looking back on a town left behind There's nothing as real as the love that's in our minds Close your eyes, I'll be here in the morning Close your eyes, I'll be here for a while. There's lots of things along the road I'd surely like to see. I'd like to lean into the wind and tell myself I'm free. But your softest whispers louder than the highways calling me. Close your eyes, I'll be here Yes, I am.
2: incredible work of history or historianship or whatever it is to be able to essentially like make people grieve the real deaths that accompanied something because we've seen this character that we love most in the world for these three hours and you know the relatively realistic faith that he has in this story
3: yeah I mean I agree what do you both make of the very last scene because Mm. Alex and I had some kind of differing
2: takes on this I feel like everyone knows that's Jack and Rose being reunited in heaven which is the Titanic and Mr. Andrews is there and he's her real dad
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah what do you think Claire
4: I think so too I'm curious I guess what you know what was the disagreement between the two of you
3: well, when Old Rose is basically at the end of her story, Jack has died. She is saved on the Carpathia. Very few people are pulled out of the water, even though there's a lot more capacity on the lifeboats. She's never going to let him go, but she lets him go into the depths of the ocean. But also, she's holding on to the promise
2: she made him to survive and never mm-hmm. letting it go. And she definitely never lets go of that because she lives to be 100.
4: Yes. Well, to survive and to like live a wonderful Rich, interesting life, right? Not to get trapped, yeah. (laughs) Among her horrible former friends and family,
2: and she ends up in Iowa by choice because she likes Iowa.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, she's saved and she gets to New York and she takes Jack's last name. She goes by Rose Dawson. She goes on to live this wonderful life. And then in present day, she is there with Bill Paxton and her granddaughter and everything. She finishes her story and she's basically like, "Yep, sorry." no diamond for you, treasure hunter, Bill Paxton. But then we realize that she's had the diamond all along because it was in the jacket that Cal gave her. We have this very impactful moment at the very end where she goes to the back of the boat and she drops the diamond into the ocean. And then what happens is that I think that she dies in her sleep because that's what Jack says she's going to do at an old age. Then she goes back to the Titanic where obviously she's dead and obviously this is heaven and I cannot possibly imagine another way to interpret this. But for whatever reason, Alex (laughs) did not see that as like an obvious thing. But then what did he think that was about? (laughs) So I've asked a couple times and I haven't come to a conclusion yet. I just think (laughs) that he, I think that maybe he wasn't necessarily ready to admit that it was like a heaven scene, but we gotta get to the bottom of this, yeah, because we like the movie ended. I'm like sobbing, and I'm like, well, at least they're together in heaven. And and Alex is like, what are you talking about? Like they're they're not in heaven. And I'm like, yeah, she dies. She goes to yes, Titanic. They they're in heaven, Alex. She's wearing a white dress that never appears in the rest of the movie. Yeah, they kiss. Why else would everybody be looking at them? Why else would only the people that died on the Titanic be looking at them? I can't interpret another way.
2: Why else would First Class and Steering be all together in peace and harmony?
3: There's
4: no other explanation. Maybe he was listening To Celine Dion every night in my dreams, I see you, I feel you. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he's a
2: literalist. (laughs) Maybe that's why Rose has always been such a good sleeper. She just like visits Jack every single night. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, all right,
3: it's uh, 630. I'm going to just get under the covers here. Night night. (laughs) I also I don't envy her husband that she actually ends up with, because like, how do you actually live up to that? Well, and then the issue is that if we're living in this world with heaven, then like has her dead
2: husband who is already in heaven (laughs) been waiting for her to join him? And then today's the day that she dies. I realize I'm being quite literal about this. And he's like, oh, Rose is coming. And then whoever is like the angel in the administrative capacity who has to explain this to him is like... No, um, actually, she's living on the ghost ship Titanic in 1912. You were actually not her first love and mm-hmm. you are not going to be seeing her. So you should get a, a heaven girlfriend. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there's multiple planes. Maybe there's way to have multiple heaven experiences. But
2: yeah, if I'm to believe in like a real and non-comedic afterlife, and and a utopian one, then yeah, everybody gets what they want. Intelligence is greater than mine can work that out. Yeah. I don't sit around believing in heaven most of my life, but like, yes, for whatever moment that scene is happening, I believe
3: completely. Same. (laughs) Bringing it back to last week's episode on Hook, I think one of the reasons that I have so much anxiety about time, part of that is, is that you realize you are going to die. And a lot of this movie is... Kind of that same emotion where you know these people are going to die. And that also means that you know that you are going to die.
2: Right.
3: You know these people's fate, but you don't know your own. And I think that's also part of the reason this movie is so impactful. Having love that is bigger than life has always been very appealing to me. And I think people can call that corny or like unrealistic or whatever. And people diminish other people's view of that being a realistic thing. But I really believe that there is love out there, not just between romantic partners, but between friends, between people that you only know a little bit in your life, people that you only have these flings with. But I think one of the most important and I think one of the most lovely and cool things that exists on the planet is that we have these loves that I I do believe are bigger than our own lives.
4: I do think you're right that people kind of are down on like romantic love specifically often in part because it's so commercialized or commodified or kind of like co-opted by the culture that we live in. Right. And that there are these moments where actual real love kind of resists that or breaks through or offers us something greater and different and better than just kind of all the everyday muck that we're mucking around in all the time yeah
2: yeah and I feel like it's maybe demonstrates the length to which society will go to denigrate anything that tween girls care about that we think Mm -hmm. that romantic love is like a frivolous and made-up thing to care about and it's like no it's very real and it's like an aspect of love which is probably One of the best things we've come up with as humans. We didn't come up with it. We just like started feeling it and then had to (laughs) deal with that.
3: Love is just incredibly transformative, not just romantic. All kinds of love is transformative and it transforms Rose's life. Yeah. This love story has transformed my life and my ideal of love.
2: Me too. And I honestly, I feel like the way that people talked about Titanic in like the Leomania 90s as if it was like this really embarrassing thing that tweens loved and it was embarrassing that they loved it. Is it embarrassing? Or like, were you worried that this was a story that was too instructive? Mm. I mean, to me, like one of the lessons of this movie is like, do not settle for anything less than someone who is completely enamored of you and thinks you're The cat's pajamas and (laughs) who you would jump off of a lifeboat for and drag into the backseat of a car to have sex with, as opposed Mm -hmm. to just sort of like work your way up to accepting has to happen someday. Setting that kind of a standard, telling whoever's watching it to believe that you can ask for that depth of emotion and that kind of, you know, somebody seeing you as someone who's capable of doing something that you don't think that you're capable of. And then you're like, well, you're seeing me able to do it, so I'll do it. But I really think you're wrong. And then you do it and you're like,
3: well, look at that. <laughs> where, where would we be without that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Claire, I have some astrology questions for you. Oh, yes. Good. Let's go. <laughs> So, this is very obviously like a New Year's movie. It feels like the kind of movie that you watch here. But the tragedy happens during Aries season. And Celine Dion is very famously attached to this movie because she sang the theme song. And I am an Aries, so I care about this. Yeah, what, what do you think about this movie astrologically? And I think you asked this during the Moonstruck episode. What would you say the movie's chart is? And then if are there any astrological things that stand out to you within the characters?
4: Okay, Rose is such a Libra, first of all. Mm. And I looked this up and Kate Winslet is Libra, Sun and Moon. Mm. Which I love those moments where it's like, did they perform this character this way, you know? Like what's the connection? How are, how are they both such Libras? Cause I think that Rose mm-hmm. and Kate are both Libras. I think Libra is a sign that's often trapped by other people's expectations or trapped by kind of wanting to do right by everyone around you so that you can't live your own life at all. Cause there's so many opposing forces pressing down on you. Mm-hmm. And also in the like <laughs> kind of stereotypical, like seventies astrology, Libra is also the most beautiful of the signs. And I just look at Kate Mm. Winslet's face and it's like, you are a Libra. (laughs) Like, Look at that perfect face. You're a Libra. And I think that Jack is an Aries. Mm. Aries, people kind of call it like the baby of the Zodiac. Like it's so pure. And Jack is just the most pure man I've ever seen on film. Do you know what I mean? He's (laughs) like so warm and kind and just right out there. He's not... And I think I learned this from you, Sarah, that Leonardo DiCaprio kept trying to play Jack a little darker and James Cameron was like, no, like you're a sweetheart, (laughs) you're pure. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. And I think that's lovely because, you know, Aries and Libra are directly opposite on the Zodiac wheel from each other Mm -hmm. in a way where they kind of, you know, can complement each other or like fit into those other things that are missing or not right in each other. What about Cal? Oh, see, I don't even want it. It's horrible. Like whoever has that sign that I call Cal, like that's terrible. <laughs> right.
2: Because it's like we, we don't have nuance with Cal. He's just like
4: snidely whiplash over here. <laughs> and James Cameron, as we know, is a Leo. Mm-hmm. And I think he's such a classic Leo. And, you know, often people are like, oh, Leos, they're so dramatic. They love to be in front of the camera. But it's like, no, he's behind the camera and he's calling all the shots. And this is James Cameron's vision. This is James Cameron's universe that we're all living in right now.
3: In your book, the whole Leo chapter is about directors, right?
4: Yeah, there's so many. Him, um, Hitchcock is a huge one in like a, I mean, you know, it's nice and not nice. All these directors who are kind of famously (laughs) difficult because they're so demanding about making their own universe that you all have to live in.
2: Is Kubrick one of them too? Yes. Mm. Hmm. That's so interesting.
3: And then do you have any thoughts about like the movie as a whole? What Titanic's sign would be?
4: Oh, I don't know. That's tough. Honestly, that's a tough one. Um,
2: Would it be easier if you did first tape, second tape?
4: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like there's a kind of Pisces Hmm. element to it. First of all, because of the floods and floods of tears that I personally yeah. and I think everyone sheds over this movie, it's a very salty movie. It is, and it's like obviously it's all set on the ocean, you know what I mean? Like, and I think there's something Pisces about wanting people to feel for this historical tragedy, trying to kind of pull down the barriers between your own normal life and this century old tragedy and Mm -hmm. trying to get you not just to know about it but to really feel it to experience it to have have empathy i guess
3: oh that's really great i love hearing about that yeah sarah and i both realized on my trip to portland that sarah and i are both pisces moons oh it's a very emotional way to be i'm a capricorn moon which is like the
4: worst (laughs) feelings wise (laughs) very challenging in what way Capricorn just likes structure so much and hates vulnerability so much Hmm. and it makes it difficult to know what to do with your feelings. Whereas Pisces is like, I can live in feelings like I get feelings. I know all about it.
2: We will take you to the opera and kiss your hand. (laughs) 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 I think something else people I imagine might dislike about this movie is that you really have to surrender to it. You can't ironically or distantly watch Titanic. Like you have to be just all in, I think. And I do feel like there was kind of a dip. All anyone could think about was Titanic. It feels like people didn't watch Titanic as much for a little while or we like didn't talk about Titanic. And now we're all talking about Titanic again because it's like safely enough in the rearview mirror that we're not afraid that we're gonna be forced to have feelings by Titanic. (laughs) <laughs> like at a certain point, I guess, like lay down on the couch and started crying the whole time. And I was just like, this is just what this movie is kind of, I think, wants to happen to you is just to to get you crying all the way. Yeah. We know that there's a dad in this movie who died, leaving only a good name and a lot of deaths. Who is the daddy? I don't have I can't make a case for myself,
4: but the answer is so clear. It's Victor Garber to me.
2: Ah, Victor Garber has incredible energy in this movie. He
4: truly does. does. He doesn't even have to say that much. You know, he just walks around and observes and is present. And it's like, oh, you're the greatest.
2: He's so twinkly toward Rose and then toward Jack and Rose Uh when they get together. Like he feels like a benefactor of their love. My favorite moment of Mr. Andrews is when He's basically decided to go down with the ship. And so <laughs> I think he's in the nearer, my God, to the montage. And he the ship is like tilting at a 30 degree angle at this point, And drinks are falling off the mantle. And he picks up a clock and adjusts the hands minutely so that it's reading the correct time.
3: Oh, yeah. I also think like Victor Garber just has general daddy energy, mm-hmm. partially because I think of him. He played Daddy Warbucks also. <laughs> <laughs> What? Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, in the remake of Annie. I'm just going to go ahead and say the obvious, which is Jack. Mm-hmm. I feel kind of dumb saying this because, like, obviously, but <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm just going to say, like, Jack and Rose's relationship because mm. truly, I dare you to name a more erotic relationship. And I dare you to name Mm -hmm. a relationship that has so fundamentally changed our perceptions of what what love should be.
2: Right. What else is there? There's like, I mean, Love Story was very popular. Nobody watches it anymore. And the only time we reference it is to make fun of it. The Notebook, Mm -hmm. also about death. (laughs) (laughs) I agree, Carolyn. And I feel like there's just... This is a movie about the radical possibilities of what a relationship can be and how much it can invite us to change Mm -hmm. and to survive and to grow. And love makes everything possible. And
3: it's a good movie. What else can I say? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do want to be clear. Like, I do think that Leo DiCaprio should probably date people his own age now. Yes.
2: Or he can date me. (laughs) Yeah.
4: (laughs) That is another option.
2: Do
3: it. (laughs) I bet that that would make him a much better person. Yeah. He could stand for
4: some transformative
3: love.
2: (laughs) No. When I researched my Titanic article, it made me really happy to watch Kate and Leo promoting the movie and kind of reflecting on their bromance. And Mm. my favorite story is that like when they were filming the scene where they were freezing to death, they were just like in this tank for hours and Mm. hours And so Kate Winslet told a story on, I think, Rosie O'Donnell's talk show about how Leo would be like, sweetie, sweetie, I got to pee. And then he'd like swim over like to another part of the tank and pee in it and then come back. (laughs) So they would like avoid peeing near each other. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Okay, that's cute. (laughs) That's nice. (laughs) that's another kind of love and that shines through. <laughs> yeah. So is is that your daddy is their bromance? I guess yeah. And like I like that this movie has a lot of daddies. I feel like the unsinkable Molly Brown. Oh yeah. Definitely counts. Rose herself. Tommy Ryan's pretty cool. All the steerage people who really step it up and are like trying to help others until the moment of their horrible deaths. Yeah, there's like a lot of good people in this story. And I do feel like as a human, I think it's very meaningful for us to consume stories that make us think about what we would do in like a certain death situation Mm -hmm. and how we would show up for people and what are the ways that are bad to behave and what are the ways that are good to behave. And apparently people need to be watching more of those. (laughs) And of course, James Cameron is the daddy because he sounds like he can be very unpleasant to work for but not as unpleasant as other directors and (laughs) they make smaller movies. I do think that it's amazing that anyone in any capacity is capable of being like, I'm making a movie depicting the sinking of the Titanic. So that like when you watch it, you will feel like you were seeing the Titanic go down. And I'm sure people were like, "Okay, whatever. Sure. Do make your stupid history movie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then he did that and changed a generation. I think changed the romantic and political expectations of people who grew up with this movie and thank you i appreciate it
0: all right folks that is this week's episode of you are good okay i just i want to set right this thing about my thoughts on titanic heaven here's what happened the titles were rolling on the screen and carolyn was touched i believe she was crying And she was like, uh, I love it where they get married in heaven, and I was like, what? Okay, because what happens is we see Jack and Rose reunite. It's memories, at least that's how I'm interpreting it. We're having memories of being on the Titanic. But Carolyn's like, no, it's they're getting married in Titanic heaven. And this went way above my head. I didn't realize that Rose was wearing white because it's, supposed, it's suggesting that they are getting married on this ship, which is also doubling as heaven. It went right over my head. I believe it. I believe that is what we're supposed to believe. I just, when I heard that they were getting married in Titanic Heaven, I was seeing something in my brain much differently. Anyway, I agree with everything that everyone said within. That's what's going on there. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to this episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you so much to Claire ClaireComps.K for coming on the show. Every time it is fantastic. Thank you so much to Carolyn for co-hosting this episode. Carolyn had a song in this episode. She covered Towns Van Zandt's, I'll Be Here in the Morning. And we are so lucky to have her brother Casey visiting. He appears in the song as well. It was a sibling effort between Carolyn and Casey Kendrick covering Towns Van Zandt's, I'll Be Here in the Morning. We're so lucky to have Carolyn record music. On top of producing each of these shows. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Carolyn. And thank you, Casey. And thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats to our show. We love you, Lesh. We appreciate everything you do. Thanks again to Claire Comstock Gay. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram. We're at You Are Good Pod. You can find a link to the playlist in the show notes. You can find You Are Good, a Feelings Podcast about movies on Patreon. You can support us there and find your bonus episodes. Patreon.com slash You Are Good. Yeah, that's it for now. You You will find our next proper episode is about The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing. So if you want to uh, get ready for that, please, by all means, get ready for The Thing. We appreciate you. You are good. Thanks so much for being here.